Welcome to the Observatory. I'm Jessica Hoffman. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. You know, design is everywhere, and I don't just mean the formal things like design weeks and design festivals in Detroit and London and Istanbul. And in fact, the curators of this year's Istanbul Design Biennial have pointed out that planet Earth, quote, has been completely encrusted by design as a geological layer. I love that. Now, that quote I discovered in an essay by writer, educator, and designer Michael Rock in T, the New York Times Style Magazine. The essay is called The Accidental Power of Design. The essay takes as a starting point this uh, national conversation slash national hysteria about public bathrooms. But in a bigger sense, it's about the pervasiveness of design and how we take design for granted, yet it actually is not just reflecting, but kind of forming culture for us. That was a short piece, but I thought it was really powerful. It was really powerful, and he, he makes a really good case for the fact that the division of bathrooms comes out of Victorian culture. It's a really 19th century carryover from a kind of uh, social segregation, male-female opposition that is really no longer complementary with our contemporary world, which is much more, I think, collective and, uh, and certainly transparent in terms of the way we communicate, which is, which is you know, all great grist for the mill for this argument. But it's, I think, this bigger issue of... Well, two things, really. What does it mean to say that design is pervasive? It's no longer a function of the hierarchical nature of designer as person who makes operative the designed thing and user or spectator or audience. But in fact, that person on the receiving end is now very much involved in decisions. Secondly, this larger question of how you define the word design at all, is it a noun, is it a verb, who consumes it, who uh, approves it, and, and what does that mean uh, for designers? You know, th- these are all really big themes, and then he's a- he really brings them down to this debate about what the signs on a public bathroom should be. People have actually conveniently, um, or just out, out, you know, out of convenience or desperation or anything else, they seize on you know, that standard sign that goes on the door as, in a way, you know, the last battleground or the leading edge, you know, the, the place you can really stake your position in terms of how you feel about this. And, it, and, and it's really funny because um, those signs on the doors reflect the design of the bathrooms beyond the doors, actually, and there is this kind of idea that the uh, um, segregating by gender uh, is, you know, kind of a given in places, but there's been this movement that you see more and more towards individual bathrooms that have closed doors, that have a toilet and and even a public sink outside the closed doors, where it doesn't really matter who's inside because you're not sharing uh, stalls, it's not an open space. So it actually has more to do with the, you could actually, you could make this, you could design this problem away with the design of the bathrooms, but until all the bathrooms themselves can be designed, it's the signs on the doors that actually end up being the locus of the conversation. And so people are actually, they're using sort of design decisions that used to be, as you say, in the scope of work of specialists who were charged with putting signs on doors in public places. Now suddenly that's something where um, people are expected to um, have an opinion. And, and aren't you facing this exact? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's funny. I know. So I've, tell us about that. I am currently working with a large private university, and we got a commission to design a comprehensive campus signage program for them. 
um, and we went up there for a um, what I thought was going to be a kickoff meeting for the entire project. And instead of going to a meeting that really was all about how the campus is identified as you approach it in a vehicle, the different kind of users that need to find their way around, and the science that could aid their understanding of this campus, you know, how you reconcile a standard science system against a bunch of different uh, historically diverse building types. The very first meeting, which had been moved forward, uh, was just about bathroom science. And in advance of the meeting, we knew what it was about. In advance of the meeting, we actually did this broad study of different kinds of um, approaches that places have taken towards bathroom science, and particularly on university campuses, and specifically university campuses that wanted to use this moment to make a uh, a positive statement about um, about diversity, accessibility, and openness to gender fluidity. Um, the standard things that are, that's a starting point for this sort of thing is uh, the generic male and female symbols that were designed, um, I think, back in the 70s as part of an AIGA Department of Transportation initiative led by Don Cook and Roger Janowski. You know, and they created those isotypes that are actually obviously uh, um, kind of follow on that long, glorious history of such things. And people, you know, there's there's a version where you simply cut one down the middle and it's half man, half woman. Ouch. Yeah, no, no, really. No, I mean, no, that, that's, there's a lot of that around because someone just decided, I guess it's sort of Solomonic divide the baby and then stitch the baby back together. I don't know. What's really that. interesting to me about this conversation is that if you pull back, and, and you're going in deep on a micro level, I want to pull back for a minute on the macro level. These binary opposites are things that only exist by virtue of their other. Fluidity may be something that makes people uncomfortable, but it does demand and deserve a different kind of focus. You know, there's nothing more objective looking than those Department of Transportation symbols. They were kind of like designed to be almost scientifically uh, neutral and purely functional in their intent. So th that makes this tension, you know, how do we project neutrality in a way that actually serves the greatest number, serves everybody, in effect. In looking at those bathroom signs, there's several different strains. There's like a whole bunch of them where actually they make an overt editorial stance about the whole thing where it's like they, they might say like literally there's one that says something like men, women, whatever. You know, and it's sort of like it's supposed to be sort of like funny, I guess. And um, the transgender community, they actually don't want to have this sort of joking moment as they're just trying to find somewhere to pee. They just, people just want this to be kind of like a normalized response. And that's, that ends up being the challenge. How do you figure out how to make it normalized? Or how can design make it normalized? Like what role does design play in kind of accentuating and amplifying that condition by which we self-identify and identify others? And so what Michael says at the end of this essay, which I think is, I mean, he's such, first of all, let's just say, such a good writer. And it's a wonderful quote at the and he says, what seems self-evident can no longer be imagined as arbitrary. In other words, you can't think about change uh, yeah. until you see change, and then you think, of course, that's the way it is. And that's not something you can actually anticipate. You can't anticipate people's reactions. You can't anticipate acceptance um, and, and, and adoption of a new way of being and a new form of perception. It's a contextual thing, and it's a, it's a, it's a developmental thing, and it's very much a behavioral thing. I, I, I don't think he quotes Machiavelli and... Um, I like to every once in a while, and he's got this great quote on change that I uh, um, I won't read, but I sort of vaguely remember from memory. It's something like uh, anyone who's seeking to make change will 
kind of be resisted on all sides. And basically, the resistance comes in two forms. The change is resisted by people who are already somehow profiting from the status quo and don't want their profit threatened by the change. But then the greater number of people who simply can't imagine what the new future would look like once the change happened and lacking the ability to foresee it cannot engender any enthusiasm about it and in fact will just sort of almost resist it in principle. And I read that and I thought it was such a great quote really about design and the design imagination because I think what designers do and what they can do, what they should do, is actually help people understand how change can be made manifest. And so trying to help people imagine a future where definition of gender isn't binary in the abstract sense is very difficult. You know, if you're, on the other hand, assuming that you are checking a box that's either M or F, assuming that you have two doors to pick from and you're going to the bathroom, that gets very concrete there. And our fixed ideas about those binary relationships actually end up being the inhibiting factor that kind of makes that change seem uh, more urgent to some people, more threatening to other people. And I think designers have a role in showing that uh, the world doesn't have to be so binary and the broader spectrum of choices can actually be helpful for everyone. So Michael and I are starting a new podcast. It's based on our first course that we're teaching at the Yale School of Management, a course in which we invite designers and their clients from a whole range of industries to talk to MBA students about the transformative role design and I think by conjecture visual culture uh, can play in shaping decisions and products and ideas. The podcast is called The Design of Business, The Business of Design. And the lineup of guests we've got is really dynamite. You cannot subscribe to the new podcast just yet, but if you're interested, please go to designobserver.com slash designofbusiness, that's all one word, and sign up for email notifications. We're going to start getting these things out very soon, and I promise you, if you like this podcast, you will like that one. They are not the same. The subjects we're getting into are really, really interesting. So, Michael, now that we're a few weeks into the semester, what do you think the biggest difference is between teaching design students and teaching business students? Design is still, it is very much a monoculture in a way. A really diverse, interesting bunch of designers coming from different places still are all designers, and they've all signed up for this kind of funny, cultish thing that perhaps um, may or may not have seemed marginalized some way along the way. People getting MBAs, I'm just struck by, they come from all these different places. Each one of them uh, won't necessarily have like an incredibly broad outlook, but they each bring kind of this different point of view to the discussion, which has led to um, really, really unpredictable class discussions, comments, questions for our speakers, very different than the kinds of comments, questions, and discussions you would have if it was a room full of design students, I think. I'm finding them really open-minded. I'm finding them polite in ways that make them lovely to deal with, but not polite in the sense that they won't tell you exactly what's on their minds. They push back. They're willing to dig deep. They are willing to admit what they don't know. Uh, they're curious. They're hardworking. Um, they've got a great attitude. Uh, and so far, I'm just, I think I, it's showing an enormous amount of promise. Well, I myself can say for sure that I'm learning a lot. I may be learning more than anyone 
in the room in each of these classes. So uh, I hope that when we uh, get a chance to expose our listeners to um, uh, to some of the ideas that have been coming up in this new podcast, uh, other people will have the same reaction. So we were talking a few moments ago about the nature of pervasiveness in design, uh, and which really leads, I think, to an interesting uh, conversation we could have, Michael, about open source design. And this was brought to bear recently um, by a story that I'm sure you've been following. Mozilla, the foundation behind the Firefox web browser and many other open source projects, is doing a brand refresh. And they decided to make that design process open too, meaning that anyone can, who's interested can uh, participate. So this process has delighted certain people. It's infuriated other people. And it's really, I think, confused many of us since we heard about it way back in June when it was first announced. Uh, Michael, I think you and I might be on the different side of this argument. What do you think? I'm really impressed and actually excited by what they're doing and think it represents a new way of doing design. And let me clarify very carefully what is actually happening here. Because I think words like open source and crowdsourcing and things actually have kind of slightly confusing definitions in this sense. What's really happening, as far as I can tell, is that they hired a really, really good designer uh, named Michael Johnson, who has a firm in London called Johnson Banks. And um, he really is designing the identity effectively. Uh, but the big difference is, is that they decided to make the entire process transparent, meaning that from the briefing stage to the idea generation stage to those seven, you know, round one logos, um, I don't think those were fielded from random suggestions from just like people shipping them in. I think that those were all things that were kind of carefully staged by the designers, by Michael Johnson, then put in front of the crowd. Then they fielded tons and tons of input about that, lots of public commentary. They're crowdsourcing comments and ideas, but only the designers will actually work on the new identity. So that's the that's what you're clarifying, right? So so yeah, yeah. so basically, they're they're beautifully, I think, um, executing a process that maybe is unfamiliar to some because it is public, and they're trying to reassure uh, those of us who were concerned that this would turn into a you know logo McLogo face. This is just meant to be open process, not open decision. Yeah, and I think. Um I find that really, really exciting. And think about how how the, the design process has evolved over time. The, the dream was um, way back when, I mean, the way I always imagine people like Paul Rand did it, is Mr. Rand would meet with the CEO. The CEO would um, explain his or her, let's, oh, let's be honest, his um, hopes and dreams for the logo. And then Mr. Rand would go off and uh, design a logo, show it to him and say, here you go, how do you like it? And then victory, and then millions of people ultimately see that logo and not really think that much about it. Think, oh, this company has a new logo or not think anything at all because who cares about logos? Somewhere along the way, people started really caring about logos. But that, that was a step-by-step -step thing. I mean, um, consumers, you know, having been told that they should really embrace these brands in a personal way for years, uh, suddenly started to the mingled horror of the companies um, seeking that close relationship. The consumers started um, actually taking it seriously and saying, hey, why did you just change my logo? I hate what you did. I hate you. I'm angry, and I'm going to start um, sending out mean tweets or starting a Facebook page 
go back to the old logo or whatever, right? So suddenly the public actually had an opinion about these things, right? Then I think that companies now are counting on that to happen, are trying to manage the reaction, and would in fact be disappointed if there was no reaction at all. What I think has happened here is that um, uh, Mozilla and uh, Michael Johnson and his team at Johnson Banks has sort of said, look, let's just kind of like open the door all the way wide instead of just kind of having these carefully um, uh, staged encounters with stakeholders and interviews with people who can give us insight into the brand and stuff like that. Why not just open the doors wide, let anyone and everyone see what we're doing, comment at what we're doing. Very appropriate for Mozilla. It's dedicated to, you know, creating free software on an open source platform. But it also is not exactly like you said, it's not like this challenge to create browsing McBrowser face. I think it's really at the end of the day kind of controlled. Right. Okay, the pernicious potential of a thing like this isn't, has nothing to do with the logo. It has to do with the behaviors that follow this sort of movement for transparency and, and where that leaves the designer. Now, as you rightly point out, the answer may lie in establishing very clear boundaries and ground rules and curatorial understanding of who does what, and roles, right? Which is its own kind yeah, of right. hierarchical value system. But I was reminded of an article that came out in print magazine a couple of years ago about this fascinating project a student was doing who was then a master's candidate in communication design at Pratt. Uh, this is a young man named Esteban Perez-Heminger. I don't know if you ever saw no, this. He's me. now a lead designer in Austin at uh, IBM. And he wrote his thesis on the question of design certification. This thing is unbelievable. And he looks at what the role of the designer is in public, from Finland to all through Scandinavia. He looks at Mexico. He looks at all of these different countries, how they perceive the role design plays, the way design is enacted, and the way we are educated as designers, bearing in mind the fact that as time goes on, people are practicing designers who don't have degrees in design. He thinks that the, the sort of unbridled enthusiasm of engagement that we bring to bear on these large things like vote on the new logo and have an opinion is a singularly American thing. It, it's, it's Horatio Alger. It's I can do anything I want to do. It's the world is my oyster. It's the sky's the limit. It's the uh, away with the glass ceiling. This is a singularly American viewpoint, he thinks. So he's actually operating, in a sense, as a design ethnographer, right, and saying, saying maybe that's actually not the only way to go. The one thing that I sort of just have no patience with is this yearning for this time where designers had some sort of imagined authority that was conferred upon them by some sort of imagined professional status, imagined mostly by ourselves and conferred mostly because people didn't give a shit about what we were doing that much, right? And um, and sort of like, you know, this idea that like people shouldn't be able to do design unless they've had all kinds of training. I've like, I've never been... I, I've never been on the pro side of a certification debate like ever, and we can talk about that now or some other time. No, and but that's not what this is about. I know it's not what it's about, but then um, the question is um, who gets to decide and how are those decisions negotiated and, you know, what's the role of the designer in those negotiations? I just think that at the end of the day, designers have to demonstrate their value through what they do say and do and the advice they're able to give people and the work they're able to perform and if that value is not self-evident no certification no kind of guardrails we put up artificially to kind of like ensure that it's going to work however as you were talking 
and particularly when he brought it around to America at the end, I was also reminded uh, in, 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 a very, in, in a rather unpleasant way, Jessica, I have to, I have to mention, that you know, we're in the midst of a, um, of a very fraught political season where I think, and other people have said, it really points out the perils of democracy as well as the wonders of it. You know, we, um, we are in a moment in time where I have read some fairly smart liberal writers kind of yearning almost for the days when, you know, candidates could be chosen by elites in smoke-filled rooms because they were in a better position to assess competency for the job. I'm not sure that's true, but uh, I, I've, I actually have leg- read that argument put forward legitimately. You know, maybe this is like a little bit too much democracy when people just get all enthusiastic about a guy who is arguably a demagogue, and he just sort of excites their imagination, and ooh, let's do this. And you just kind of want some kind of, you know, uh, and like that sort of is not making a very good case for um, for open sourcing democracy. It actually ends up looking kind of like chaotic and something that could easily lead to the collapse of the republic. So, <laughs> um, I find, you know, so I'm not sure where I where I land on this thing vis-a-vis logo design, which seems quite um, like a modest and harmless kind of enterprise compared with um, you know making decisions about the nuclear arsenal. What you said at the very end, it really does come down to can designers make a great case for design? Can designers actually be the people that can convene uh, communities to reach consensus about ideas? And I don't think we're particularly well prepared for that um, in our educations. I don't think that many of us are actually predisposed to that through temperament. And obviously, I think it's like unequivocally true that that is going to be a skill that may not just be necessary, but may be the preeminent skill that designers will need going forward. Uh, so we've been talking about some pretty heavy topics this morning. Was there something that you liked this week, Michael, that you'd like to share? I'm not sure that this is going to um, lighten things up at all, but um, but I do th- think it's something that our listeners um, uh, would like to uh, uh, to take a look at. Um, earlier this year, I think back in May, um, in the UK, a remarkable man named David King died after a long career. And David King... Um, was a designer and a really good designer designed a lot of amazing stuff for progressive causes designed uh, the cover of the who sell out which if you're a record sleeve enthusiast you'll remember that very very fondly he also was a classic sort of art director and photo editor and had this um, remarkable ability to um to kind of like read a photograph and kind of figure out what a photograph was. And for 10 years, he was the uh, art editor of the Sunday Times magazine in London and um, was able to put together astonishing visual stories out of the photography that the Times of London would commission from their photographers around the globe. And it all came to a head through this kind of enthusiasm that he had for the photographs and other ephemera from the Soviet, the early Soviet era, particularly from the revolution through the rise of uh, Stalin, and he had 
amassed by the time he died a collection that was said to be uh, more than a quarter of a million uh, objects and photographs mainly. And he put them together in different forms, made some exhibitions, made some books. And there was one book that I would really encourage uh, um, our listeners to seek out online. It's called The Commissar Vanishes. Have you, have you heard of this, Jessica? It's, um, have you I seen have it? heard it. I have not it's, seen it, though. Tell me about it. Oh, oh, my God. It is so great. And I just, I was moving books around in my library um, earlier uh, this week, and I came across it, opened it up, and then it, two hours later, I was still looking at it. And basically what he does is he takes photographs, like official state photographs from the early communist era in the Soviet Union, and uses them as evidence of what was happening politically. And the classic case, and the place from where the book gets its title, is um, that he takes a series of photographs that uh, were taken of Stalin and Trotsky and all these guys who led the Bolshevik Revolution. And then one by one, as Stalin consolidated his power through show trials and executions and sending his, uh, his former colleagues and then competitors and then uh, uh, arch rivals off to gulags in various places, the photographs reissued and retouched every time. And first, like, there's, you know, it's a spot the difference thing. One guy is missing. Then um, a guy who actually is more in favor with Stalin is, like, repositioned to stand closer to Stalin. Another guy is taken out altogether. And in the end, the last picture is just a picture of Stalin against a background that has no other people at all. And it's just as visual storytelling, not of, 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 of a real and kind of, you know, a terrifying set of historical circumstances. It just is so indelible. The guy's name is David King, uh, well-known in the U.K., shockingly, I think, uh, little-known here in the United States, amazing body of work, and The Commissar Vanishes is just the very best of it, which I couldn't recommend more highly. What about you? I am watching with great um, interest the uh, show on Showtime uh, called Masters of Sex, which is based on the story of... Masters and Johnson. Uh, it's now, I think, in its fourth season. I'm, of course, way behind. Um, but I, I'm, what interests me, uh, there are a number of things that interest me about this. Um, if you, Michael, I, if you, I don't know if you've seen it, but it is, it is I have seen certainly it, yeah. the period of Mad Men. So it's got, I mean, uh, j- let's just say, uh, uh, before going any further, that the costumes are so remarkable. And I don't know who <laughs> no, their the costumes are. The costumes, the costumes great, I, mean, yeah. I mean, everything from the curtains to the pajamas, impeccable. Uh, in its representation and its reality to that period, and, and it's it's set it's set like in the Midwest at the University right. of Virginia, no, 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 it's, University it's, a, of Indiana, it's at Washington right? University in St. Louis, and so it's here you've uh, got. There you go. This so is, it's, it's very Midwestern. Right. So I like this that. is so that's the thing that I think I'm I'm actually working on a project for which this is research. It's dab smack in the middle of the century. It's dab smack in the middle of the country. And they were asking some pretty tough questions. And there was obviously engagement with actual subjects to test all the sorts of things that go on in the privacy of one's bedroom. Uh, I think they just so evocatively and and pitch perfectly are able to uh, show this part of the world and this part of American history and sexual (laughs) history that we don't tend to think about. But you know, at the end of the day, it's really good television. The characters are amazing. Their plot lines are tortured in ways that are are so moving. The actors in it are superb. The writing is fantastic. Uh, it's really compelling as as a piece of social history and as a piece of drama. Uh, it's it, and it's visually just stunning. So highly recommended. Yeah, the performances are great. Um, you know, I don't. Uh 
know how um, how how accurately cast uh, Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Sheen are. Uh, Michael Sheen seems pretty, re very plausible as an academic. Michael Sheen, let's just say, uh, Michael Sheen's a Shakespearean-trained English actor. I believe he's Welsh, actually. Uh, and he joins um, uh, Damian Lewis getting the award for the English person with the best American accent that you would never think is English. I just, <laughs> I, my hat is off to both of them. I think it's really, it's remarkable. <laughs> never does anything slip in that is English. Uh, well, I could watch Lizzie Kaplan do anything, like anywhere. I just think she's like the She's best. remarkable, and she's got the most exquisite expressive eyes. She's got eyes that are half the size of her head. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's humanly yeah, impossible yeah. that anyone can have eyes that big. But she's great. He's great. Uh, Allison Janney's in it. Uh, really, really great casting and uh, and well worth watching. But I always like these shows that are compelling uh, dramatically and well-written and cast, but they also have this this way of capturing a piece of American history. If you ever read David Halberstam's book on the 50s, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. it was a really interesting decade. I've always, um, Teddy Blanks, who's a designer, who's done a lot of work with Design Observer, uh, has a theory that we're always most interested in the decade that directly preceded our birth. Mm. And so it may be, I was born in the 60s, it may be that my fascination for the 50s comes from that. Um, he was born at the end of the 80s and claims he loves the 70s for the same reason. So if there's something to that, uh, anyone of my generation will particularly like it. But I think it's really, it's just, it's buttoned down in terms of its capacity to completely evoke this period that is long gone um, by, by quite a long time now. But um, it's a great story and, and really, really visually exquisite. <laughs> The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed, from Masters of Sex to David King to the latest Mozilla logo explorations. If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about The Observatory. Go to iTunes and rate us and leave a review. You don't have to give us five stars, but as we've said before, reviewing the show really makes a difference. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Teddy Blanks, yes, that same Teddy Blanks who I just mentioned, wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Esther. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon. Thank you.